Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, November 14th, 2018. Sitting here on Spaceship Boston, Spaceship South Boston, my little abode on the water. And I'm so happy that Brian picked that as a topic because for so many years as I watch the sun come up as we head east, I always thought of it as, of course, the sun's not coming up. The sun is staying where it is, and this little spaceship of ours is traveling through space. And as we round the corner every morning, there it comes, the sun, and it's, we just roll by it and have another, add another day to our great uh, history. So, Brian, I'm very fortunate to uh, be acquaintance of Brian. I've met him a few times and also uh, have discussed, had him on the program many times and discussed many of the topics he's going to be talking about today. Brian is a writer, theorist, and film director. Uh, He's written extensively about topics ranging from contemporary urban gentrification to the history of boxing, the presidency of Donald Trump, to an analysis of 21st century capitalism. Heroin Addiction in Modern American Society to the Culture of Boston, Massachusetts. The Ideology of Neoliberal Globalization to Amazonian Plant Medicine. Contemporary Cinema to Human Sexuality. His books include The Meaning of Trump, Postscripts on Boxing, There is No Such Thing as Boston, Conversations on Gentrification, on heroin and his forthcoming novel, Into the Jungle. He's written and directed three films, including the feature-length documentary, The Mission, and the short film, Now, Passage. He's a graduate of Skidmore College in New York, where he was a standout student athlete, graduating as the all-time leading scorer in the history of the basketball program, before briefly playing professionally in Europe. His website is www.briankalkin.com. Wow. Pretty impressive. Brian uses the term spaceship Earth to explain the transformation of human consciousness that is now occurring all around us in the 21st century. He claims that as globalized capitalism now codes and tags and controls not just the entire surface of the planet, but also our very bodies, cells, and neurons. It is functioning almost like a pressure cooker that is making us take account, not just for our political and social structures, but also our very status as human beings living on what can only be called spaceship Earth. In other words, from the daily violence that capitalism now unleashing across the planet, from transitional corporations to Madison Avenue marketing to information overload. We are being forced to take account for our status as spiritual, even cosmic beings. Wow, try to absorb all of that, but, uh, oh, here he is. Let's do this. Brian, are you there? Let's see how we... Brian, Brian. Yes, yes. Uh, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. How are you? Thanks for having me. That's fantastic, and I love your analogy of comparing us to Spaceship Earth, which is exactly what we're doing, isn't it? Kind of traveling through this cosmos, and uh... well, I mean, in a in a very um, in a very actual way that that you know, speculating into something that sounds borderline. Uh, science fiction or, or anything like that or any kind of metaphysical proposition. I mean, in a very material way, that's, that's what planet Earth is. That's why I particularly like that term. I mean, we are at this very moment essentially flying through the middle of the, of, of the universe on a planet that's going around a sun, which is passing through a galaxy, which is part of a bigger system. So, yes, I, I do like this um, this term spaceship Earth to describe the situation that we are that we are materially experiencing as as uh, citizens here. So, yeah. <laughs> I you know before you came on the air, I was excited. one day it hit me that uh, as I watched the uh, 
sun come up, I realized, no, the sun's not coming up. The sun is staying exactly where it is. And we are coming over the over the ridge and watching as we descend, as we turn, and then the sun starts to move up in our sky. And and uh, it is. And I'm so blessed here because I've got these great windows looking on Boston Harbor, so I get this great panorama as that happens. So uh, this is fascinating. We've talked a lot in the past, and I'd love to always uh, share ideas with you and your insights and perspectives on society and uh, all of the uh, transformations that are happening. Now, you've written five books and directed three films so far. And you're, what would you call the major theme of your work? Well, your theme of my work. Well, the first thing I would say is that I feel like I am kind of just getting started here with what I want to say. And a lot of my writing, I think, is kind of figuring out for myself what's going on. Um, but without question, the, this kind of first stage that I'm in, it's, it's kind of like setting the table for how, how I, of how I see, um, a wide range of things happening on the planet today, whether they be political or economic or social or cultural. But ultimately, I think what I would describe these first five books is as a critique of capitalism in the sense that. My my analysis and my feeling of the situation today, in many ways, the world is capitalism in the sense that the entire array of human experience now is being directly mediated. When I say mediated, influenced by the basic drive and the technological apparatus of capitalism. I'll give a perfect example. At one point in human, in day-to-day average experience of a human being, friendship, just basic friendship, was beyond the reach of capitalism, corporate power, technological interference. And this isn't like something that was like a thousand years ago. We're talking about 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But now when you get on Facebook, when you get on the various social media, the basic interchange of this idea of friendship, it's no longer what it once was. Friendship now is something that is tagged and quantified and put in through algorithms. And when we send a message to somebody on Facebook, that is being put into a cloud that's being scanned for information that can be sold to third-party advertisers. This is just a basic idea. things which friendship is absolutely a sacred thing, is being handed over to the processes of capitalism. And we're doing this without absolute, and we're generally doing this with absolutely no consciousness, no awareness of how this is happening. There's a million ways to show this. The general trajectory of my writing is showing how since the 1980s, we have been seeing capitalism start, starting to operate in a very different way. In the post-war era, you, you know, from the 50s to the late 70s, early 80s, you had what was called embedded liberalism, embedded capitalism. And during this period, there was this kind of consensus, capitalism, labor, and the government, the state, and what you had to do was kind of like the nine-to-five job, basically. You know, you, you had this kind of stability that was built in. It was by no means perfect, right? But you had this general stability in the operation of business. Once you went to the 1980s, and now you come to 2018, what's happened is that that stability has been totally and completely eviscerated. It's gone. The, the, the very idea of a stable nine-to-five job with, a pension, and I mean, this is a total joke today. It's completely gone. And the reason why it is gone is because capitalism has basically extended itself beyond the traditional confinements of where it was contained. It's no longer contained in the office building. It's no longer contained by the nine-to-five shift. Now it is everywhere, always constant. And it's done that basically 
not just through its, its ideological synchronization with something like neoliberalism, but also because of technology. I mean, just this idea that we have a smartphone in our hand. I mean, this is giving this kind of constant um, ability of capital to get into our brains, get into our relationships, get into our public spaces. Get in, I mean, it's everywhere. So my writing is basically kind of um, almost a cartography, a map of how that is happening. For instance, in the, the book I wrote on boxing, I, I describe boxing as a metaphor for, for, for that transformation. In my books on gentrification, in my books on Trump, and my, my most recent book, the book I just wrote on heroin that's being published next year. So the, these things, that is how I would summarize the general tra- trajectory or the general theme of my early writing, if that, if, if, if that helps. Yeah, I mean, that leads my, to my next question. How does gentrification fit into how you just described this traje- tra- trajectory? Well, gentrification, um, I mean, gentrification fits in directly to that trajectory because part of, the, part of what's happened over the past 30 years is that you've seen most certainly in American cities is this incredible transformation of the city. You know, in the post-war era, the, the era that I was just speaking about of, of embedded capitalism, the nine-to-five shifts, the idea was to get to the suburb, right? This was the basic idea. You wanted to get to the suburbs, you wanted to get to a house with a nice white picket fence. And what happened in the city in that time, let's say in the 70s and 80s, was a total decomposition, a breakdown of those once kind of tight-knit, working-class ethnic neighborhoods. And what was left in the city was basically this impoverishment of the city, this incredible racism that was leveled against the African-American community and other minority communities. And you had this kind of collapse of urban life, whereas in the 1980s, urban America was kind of known as the urban jungle. It was dangerous. You didn't want to go in there. Now, I mean, Boston, are you kidding me? I mean, Boston is like, that's where you want to be now. I mean, a, a great example, this is, Boston's interesting because it, it wasn't just simply black people. When you look at, like, let's say, South Boston or Charlestown in the 1980s, I mean, this was poor white people. And not just poor white people, but poor white people living in a community that was going through a tremendous social crisis, a tremendous symbolic crisis. I mean, South Boston in particular, you look at South Boston in the 1920s, or the 19, even during the Depression in the 1930s. I mean, this is an incredibly tight-knit, socially cohesive community. I mean, of course, it wasn't perfect, right? But, but you know, all the men were working on the docks. You'd, every, the, the masses on Sunday were completely packed. There was this kind of continuity, this kind of sense of culture. And what you get by the 1980s is a, is a total breakdown of that. It's, it's gone. And now... By 2018, you have million-dollar lot, million-dollar condos. You have this total transformation of the social substance of all of these old neighborhoods. Let's just stick with Boston, whether it's white Irish South Boston, the Italian North End, African American Roxbury. This is what you have. So, part of the way capitalism is operating today is that it's operating. It wants to operate in an urban environment. It doesn't want to operate out in the country. It doesn't want to operate really even in the suburbs, for that matter. There's a tremendous urbanization of culture happening. Mm-hmm. Also, as a correlate, this kind of uh, technological control, this kind of technological mediation of our lives. And in terms of the case, when you really, when you say gentrification, all you're really saying is the the experience of of direct capitalism in an urban environment. I mean, that's really all. Of course, there are multiple ways to articulate gentrification, but in a very simple way, it's just it's just raw capitalism applied to the urban topography. Whereas the old, the quote unquote, the old neighborhood that was once defined by, you know, the parish priests, the local neighborhood club. The, the kids on the stoop hanging out, now it's no longer like that. Now it's the singular individual working within the global economy who, you know, meets his friends on Facebook 
and dates people on Tinder. And like the whole communal experience of urban life has been basically shattered and it has been put into a framework that is directly, directly mediated by these forces and these new forces of capital, capitalist production. So that, that's basically the way I read gentrification. And, and from that basic reading, there's infinite derivatives. There, there are infinite ways that, that you can understand the particular social composition, the, the, the basic cultural, um, you know, films, literature, music, what's happening politically, what's happening in the daily newspaper. So from, from that general understanding of gentrification, there, there are so many things that follow logically. So that, that's how gentrification fits in. You know, I uh, I can't help but think this uh, this summer I was performing my comedy in a Smuggler's Notch in Vermont, and after the show we went to a local bar, and it was closing, and the staff was there. We got into a conversation with some young women, millennial age, and we began talking about just this. And we were talking. Uh, I had just finished the book Homo Deus by um, Harari, in which he talked about the emergence of the new religions. And one of the gals, it was, you know, here's a gal who was uh, basically a, a, a kitchen staff. Uh, I don't know if she went to college or finished college or not. But she made this pithy observation. She said, capitalism is the new religion. And she said that in a kind of a mournful, you know, longing way that, yeah, it has become about the dollar, the material aspects. And I guess the question I have now, we know that this is occurring, but to me, I'm just shocked and amazed by the buy-in that we as individuals give to this. We just, in fact, Harari mentions it at the book, in the beginning of his book, Homo Deus. He says, you have to understand, we have all bought into this and I see it, I live with it every single day, and I see the buy-in, and I see the lack of consciousness, and the, the, you know, the fact that most people are asleep. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, the buy-in? Yes, I mean, the, the first thing that I would say is that this, the idea that capitalism is functioning metaphysically or, you know, as a religion, that's definitely not a new observation. I mean, Walter Benjamin made that observation 100 years ago, you know, that, that capitalism, so I mean, it's not necessarily new, but what is new is the technological power of capitalism, how it literally, as, as Marx once said, everything solid melts into air, or you could say now everything solid melts into your social media feed. So it, there's absolutely no doubt that it's functioning in a, in a more direct way right now than it ever has. But I think there's always been some kind of theological or metaphysical Im- implication that is associated with capitalism. And the reason why is because the basic drive of capitalism is to break down religion. It's to break down local community. It's to break down a person's basic psychological composition and be the sole mediator of life. So what, what I would say, first of all, to the point that the woman made in, in the restaurant, yes, of course, I think she's absolutely right. And to your point that people have bought into it, that is also true. But the way people buy into things is through being ideologically, the word, the proper word is called interpolated or mediated or kind of like they're, they're buying into a system that they don't really know that they're buying into. And this right. is absolutely what has happened since the 1980s. Since capitalism has moved away from its industrial phase where things were kind of obvious. You know, you, you had the, the gray-suited man, you had the guy working in the factory, and in the corporate, you had the woman staying home with the kids. You, you had this kind of, you could read how things were, were happening. It doesn't make it right by any means. But, 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 but there was a semblance of coherence. Once you get to the 1980s, and once capital becomes more integrated with these very, very powerful computational technologies, once it becomes integrated with the kind of um, 
anything goes philosophy of, of neoliberalism, now all of a sudden things become much more complicated. It's much harder to read things. You know, I mean, this is a great example. When Mark Zuckerberg was uh, giving his um, congressional testimony earlier this year, I, I found this almost unbelievable that the commentators, certainly on the right, like people like Fox News, but even the, the, the Republican congressmen were essentially accusing Zuckerberg as being like this borderline left-wing socialist. I mean, this is like the most outrageous idea that I've ever heard. I mean, this is, <laughs> is that like Mark Zuckerberg is like, like he, he is like the, the, the example par excellence of capitalism. I mean, this is capitalism, right? Absolutely. Like, my God, what you, what you have today, and this is exactly to your point, there is a lack of consciousness in understanding how things are working. What is happening? I mean, people critique the world today as if we're still living in the 1950s. Let me tell you, we're not living in the 1950s. We're living in what you could almost call the brave new world, where things are not as they seem. Things are topsy-turvy. Left is right, right is left, up is down. And Mark Zuckerberg is by no means a left-wing socialist. Mark Zuckerberg is embodying what we could call the new spirit of capitalism. And the new spirit of capitalism is not the way it used to work. You have this kind of factory boss saying, do your job. The way it's working now is it's telling us, yes, you can. You know, it's, it's like telling us, you can become your best self click here and give us all your information, but don't read the fine print. So there's all these different ideological ways that we're not seeing what is happening. But you, I think to your point, you absolutely know consciousness, and that's the word, consciousness of the way that this great capital neoliberal system is now functioning in, in the 21st century. And, you know, there are so many examples of this. I mean, the way and you really see this in Silicon Valley is that they tend to, I mean, Silicon Valley right now, and again, I mean, you, you can't characterize things as all good or all bad. Of, of, of course, technolo- certain features of technological development have, have been and are incredibly beneficial to the development of, of, of humanity, right? But in many ways, at least for me, the way Silicon Valley is developing, I mean, it's sending us back into like a dark ages. I mean, we are becoming less informed. Our capacity to concentrate, pay attention, simply function in a communicative setting. I mean, these are being absolutely ravaged. Proximity to things like smartphones and social media and, and the various apps that are on our um, computational devices. But, I mean, if you talk to the average Silicon Valley entrepreneur, I mean, they present themselves as these, as these like, humanitarian. <laughs> Oops, we got to click there. Do we lose you, Brian? Sorry. Uh, these we may these have lost. people. Oh, there you go. Okay, there was, a, there was a little. You may have to repeat what you said because we lost you for a second. How, how long did you lose me for? No, we just well, you said that they 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 approach this in a humanitarian way. Yeah, okay. So they they, they present themselves as being these humanitarians, but in a way they're exactly the same as let's say the ruthless factory owner was in the late eighteen hundreds. There's absolutely no difference. The difference is the way it's presented. Whereas before it was obvious, it was hard, it was in your face. Today it is soft. It is behind your back, and it is coming. It's not coming to your body. It's coming to your brain. That's the difference. It's coming to your soul. Whereas before, it was like, get in the factory, stay in the office building, sit at your desk, stay at the assembly line, work nine to five. That is like, we don't care where you work. Work in the cafe. You, you know, do whatever you want, but it's in you now. It's in your, your neurological composition. It's in your emotional life. It's in your brain. So this is the way things are working now, and there's been little... Um, social awareness, I think, of this transformation of, of how capitalism is now operating. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, you and I are different generations. However, you're right. I I grew up in Roxbury. I hung out in South Boston during my teen years, so I I had exposure to both cultures. You know, the predominantly black culture of Roxbury and the urban white Irish, um, Polish, all of that of South Boston. And everything was a community. I mean, you, you you hung out on a corner. You had a certain territory. If you moved into another territory, that was that you know it, uh, it was dangerous. You knew everybody uh, in that particular neighborhood that you did, you know everybody from the gal who you know the the little old lady who swept her sidewalk. Um, and you're right. There was a connection. It was all about connection. It was about family. It was about friends. It was about neighborhoods, community. And I think that's what, you know, when the busing and everything happened in South Boston, no, the government wasn't aware of the sense of community. And nor was the rest of America that that people in South Boston have, that they all came together. And again, not that they were right, but they all came together to defend what they felt was their tradition and their rights and so we come from that and then then uh, as you did i ended up going to stonehill and every semester it was a requirement to take a theology course and a philosophy course you uh, also i think you had a double major one of being philosophy so we've had this training of you being able to uh, study the different disciplines absorb the different different disciplines choose disciplines. but we had a consciousness we were awake and now what i'm seeing with the youth and the, the millennials and the generations after you're right they're they're being born into this they don't have no idea of what it was like before yeah i mean i think the millennials are the probably the most poorly treated generation in the history of america and it's interesting because they're at the same time they're presented as being like overly narcissistic and self-centered. And, and, you know, that's probably true. They probably are like that a little bit more than certainly than the generation that, that, that you're part of. To me, it's like the reason why they are like that is precisely what you just said is because they grew up with their best friend was a computer, right? They grew up speaking and developing relationships and being advertised to a thousand times a day in a way that prior generations weren't. So there is, because actually I just read a really good book called Millennials in the Moment That Made Us by this, this young author named Sean Scott. And he really, it was a really good book and it, and it kind of changed my outlook on the way millennials are presented in media as these kind of hypersensitive, narcissistic, um, self-centered individuals. And, you know, again, there might be a grain of truth to that, right? But we should also look at why they're like that, right? And again, oh, the rule that I have is like, the, and the more proximate you are to unbridled market forces and unbridled computational power, the more your interior life suffers. And when your interior life suffers, the natural recourse is to become more guarded. The natural recourse is to become more self-centered. It doesn't make it right, but th this is what human beings do. So I think what's happening right now across America is you're really seeing, without question, this tragic mental health epidemic, emotional vitality depreciation, and, of course, victims of these, independent of the billions of dollars in profits that these absolutely monstrous pharmaceutical companies are making, are these truly tragic shootings. You know, people are so mentally ill that they're just going into, and, and they're suffering so much that they're just like walking into churches or schools or bars and opening fire on people. I mean, this is totally and completely symptomatic of a culture that is psychologically deteriorating. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And the reason why, you know, you, you can never pinpoint the reason, but like the general gestalt, the, the general zeitgeist that we find ourselves in in 21st century American culture 
is a culture that people are drawing inward. And the reason why they're drawing inward is because it is impossible. It's not impossible, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to maintain authentically, quote-unquote, human relationships. And when I say human, what I mean by that is simply relationships that are not mediated by or defined by computational power, by algorithms, by, you know, corporations, by all this stuff. So our whole lives are being controlled in these micrological forms of power, these subtle technologies, these kind of coercive thousands of advertisements that, that, that we're being bombarded with every day. These things are creating a situation, and then to top it off, the general quality of the food that we're eating and the, the, um, the general quality of the food that we're eating and, and these drugs that we're taking, it's causing a, a breakdown of, you could say, the collective psychological composition of the country, and this is absolutely leading to, on the physical level, you have this obesity crisis, this kind of, on the mental level, you have this psychic, you kind of have this psychic breakdown, this kind of depression, anxiety. And then, of course, the big thing is this kind of spiritual blackout, this lack of meaning, this symbolic effacement of what it means to be human beings, what it means to be American, what it means to be part of a local community or an urban, whatever. So all of these things are kind of congregating or coalescing into something right now that I believe is, is, is yes, and, and this is the point that I've been trying to make in, my, in some of my writing, is that, yes, all of these bad things are happening, right? But that is almost functioning like a pressure cooker in the sense that it's forcing people to wake up and say, hey, wait a second, what's going on around here, you know? So this is what I think, in a way, it's like anything, Tom. You know, the wound, the way we are wounded is always the door to healing, right, whether it's on the personal level or the collective level. So when a person is wounded, this is from a different perspective. Shifting how we look at it, this is the doorway to, whole, to wholeness. This is the doorway to how we get in to heal ourselves. And I think this is the very same thing on the, on the collective level. As all of these socialized traumas are happening, they can open the door and say, hey, wait a second, what is going on here, you know? Absolutely. I, you know, I want to, uh, recently I was pleased to find that Netflix has uh, re-aired and re-edited the conversation that Bill Moyers had with Joseph Campbell. And it was interesting. I had bought the book years ago. The, the, The interview was over 40 years old. And I had bought the book and I even had it on audio, but I never... You know, I had heard enough and read enough that I just didn't have a desire to jump into it. Well, there it was in front of me, so I tuned in. And it's absolutely, even though it was done four years ago, it couldn't be more relevant than it is today. So Moya says to him, well, he says, uh, Joseph, he says, what's your message? He said, simple. He says, follow your bliss. And so Moya says, well, let me play devil's advocate. There's a lot of people out there thinking, well, it's okay for you to say, Joseph, you grew up in a an educated family, um, upper middle class. You went to Harvard. You went. You taught at Sarah Lawrence. <clears throat> you had this gifted life. And and Joseph Campbell immediately interrupted him and said, "Wait a minute. Wait a minute." He says, "All my life, I have belonged to systems that demanded compliance, that demanded obedience, that demanded I p- perform to a set of rules." He says, "However, I lived my life as a ma- maverick." I never submitted. Now, we all know that he was the inspiration for George Lucas's Star Wars. You know, Absolutely. The, the, Absolutely. Right, the, the journey yep. of the hero. So they said, so now they play a clip from Star Wars where Darth Vader is tempting Luke to come to the dark side. And they stop the film, and Joseph Campbell says, do you see Darth Vader? He says... Darth Vader is tempting Luke to come to the dark side. And what is the dark side? What is the evil side? The evil side is the intellect. 
The evil side is the ego. The evil side, the ego, distances itself, separates itself from the heart and the soul. And he says, if you subscribe to any system which separates you from your heart and your soul, you are headed for a schizophrenic crack-up. And I can't think of anything more pithy or appropriate for today. America is in a schizophrenic crack-up. Absolutely. It's interesting, you know, it's interesting how you brought up that line. It's also interesting how that line, in a way, has been used against itself. Because in a way, it's interesting, Campbell was saying that line you know, 40 years ago in a time period where society was functioning in a more overtly patriarchal, oppressive way. So this idea of following your bliss, it has a very, even though there's absolutely something universal and timeless about that sentiment, absolutely, it doesn't matter when or where you say it, there's something profoundly true about that statement. But at the same time, we should read that in its cultural, in its cultural difference. What, what I mean by that, saying that in the 1960s is very different than saying that in 2018. And the reason why so is because, like I said, since the 1980s with neoliberalism, what is the motto of every corporation that talks to people today? It's basically follow your bliss, right? This is how corporations talk to people today. Live your best life. Be, I mean, this is almost like the model of someone like Tony Robbins. Be your true self. Follow your dream. So the tragedy, I think, of Campbell is that that statement has been weaponized by, literally weaponized, to turn people away from this kind of authentic following your truth to follow your bliss so you can, you know, make more money and, you know, get, get more social media follow, whatever. But it's being used in a different way today that's been ripped away from its original context in the way that Campbell means it. I totally agree. Yeah. You know, when, you hear, when I question the youth and they say, well, I want this or I want that, you know, and this is my goal, I mean, this is my dream. I mean, the, the basic operation, you can always say the story of bliss is like the, like the motto of 21st century capitalism. Whereas the motto of, excuse me, Following your bliss is the model of 21st century capitalism, whereas the model of 20th century capitalism was like, do your duty. You know, so there's a difference in the way things are operating, operating today. Campbell said that at a time when society was telling people, do your duty. Shut up, go to the back of the line, do your duty. Now, it's not saying that at all to people. The way that you're being addressed today is, get yours. Follow your bliss. Do you, right? So it's creating this kind of hyper-narcissistic, selfish subjectivity. It's a very different thing. However, proof of that, and I absolutely agree with, you know, Zikhan said that in, a very different, in, the, in the same thing but a different way. He said, do not, comp- do not compromise your desire. And I totally agree with that. But when we say these things, follow your bliss, do not compromise, we have to be aware where we are saying them. What culture exactly, are we and I mean, he then? connected it. He connected it to the heart and soul. That's what's. That's the difference today. Yes. It's not nobody's. And, and, you know, the corporate corporate world, the, the 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 capitalist world, you know, does globalized world does not want you concentrating on your heart and soul. It goes the other way. Well, it does. It does only if it can be generated into profit. So it's it's not like an authentic right. heart and soul. But I think there's you know. Yes, absolutely. He he signifies this kind of fissure between the left and right brain where, you know, a healthy whole person, there's this kind of integration of the heart and the intellect where they're kind of operating on kind of a slightly asymmetrical level but nevertheless together, whereas Vader is yep. kind of like ultra-left brain, cold, totally detached from his emotional life, from his genealogy, yep. you know, separated from his children, um, and functioning almost in a way as you could say like this kind of corporate overlord of the empire. And encountering his son, you know, his own flesh and blood in the form of Luke Skywalker, kind of he has his awakening in um, the Return of the Jedi in the last scene 
where he reconnects to his flesh. He takes off his helmet and says, "Look at the look look at this vulnerability. Look, I mean, that is really what it is too. It's like Darth Vader's total lack of vulnerability. This kind of machinic um, figure whose entire existence has been coded and tagged and put into this apparatus of metal and silicon. You know, it's it's, it's almost like." In a way, we're all becoming these kind of Darth Vader figures in, in, in the present moment, right? But the, but the real trick is we think we're becoming Luke Skywalkers, right? Because we don't have to wear the, the metal um, dark suit, right? We can have our sleeve tattoos and we can think that we're acting all cool. But, but the fact is there is a kind of like um, the, the dark side of the force, you could say, is very, very obvious and clear right now, certainly in America. And the the whereas the light side of the force or the good side of the force is yeah as you say it's it's kind of integration with the heart you know having um, I mean you look at the Jedi they had tremendous social responsibility they were tremendously aware that not just political life and social life and cultural life was interconnected but organic life and cosmic life and, bio- and biological life there was this kind of Invisible force that structured everything, and the idea was to become in harmony with that, not to use it and manipulate it for the purpose of power, which is what the dark side did. So yeah, I mean, of course, I mean the great thing about Star Wars and why why it has remained lodged in the cultural memory bank, almost as I mean, definitely a modern day myth, and almost at the level of Greek mythology, is because it's talking about something that's profoundly true. That's profoundly archetypal that, um, that anybody or anyone can relate to because it's speaking about something that is transpersonal, transcultural. It's, it's cosmic what they're talking about. So, yeah, no, definitely. I agree. I agree. Yeah, and, but and, what I would say right, and I mean, this is that it's just important when we say it to know where we're saying it, who we're exactly. saying it to, and the culture, the, the culture surrounding us when we say it, because I can tell you right now, saying "follow your bliss" in 1960, surrounded by our culture of culture of factories and bureaucracies, and you know, men wearing suit and ties, versus saying "follow your bliss" in today's society, surrounded by yoga studios and people with sleep tattoos and internet startups, it means different things. It means different things. Of course, it things. does. And you know, you just and, and we, the key word you just said was archetypal. You know, it's it's common to all of us, and 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 that is now. Well, now we're we're hearing what the new religions and the new philosophy. The hell with archetypes. The hell with anything that's inherent or instinctive, or in, in, inherently human, innately human. Forget that. It's all about the new left. Is all about. Oh no! It's all up to the individual. It's all subjective. There is no commonality. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, that perfectly synchronizes with the basic function of capitalism, the way it's functioning today, is to reduce things to the absolute minimal level, to the personal level, to the cellular level, to the genetic level, which is causing people, like you say, to have these ultra-individualistic worldviews, these ultra-narcissistic... This, it's almost like narcissism is becoming like a social personality where it's just everybody's a narcissist. And this is derivative. Absolutely. I mean, how, how many selfies be... can you take? Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, and, I mean uh, the selfie is a clear is, is, is a clear symptom of that collective narcissism that is being induced from the outside to American society right now. Absolutely. You know, and at the end of this well particular episode, what uh, Campbell was saying, he says he said to Moyers, "All right, now look at this scene." And it was the scene, the final scene where. Luke is uh, in all of the, um, the, the the pilots are going through the canyons and they're fighting the the, the, the you know the evil force and the empire and you know it's it's looking pretty bad you know there's they're starting and then you know um, Luke hears the voice of Obi Wan and Obi Wan says Luke be with the force let yep. go let go and so. Campbell is always saying there's a higher source, there's a higher purpose. And as long as you're separate from that, you're in trouble. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's this this understanding, and that to me today is what is totally lacking. That anybody understands that there is a spiritual force, that there is a higher purpose, a higher meaning, and it's all about no, fly your own plane. <laughs> you know, you're in control. You think you think you're in control of that plane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no, and I mean, that's that the separation we're seeing. And, you know, the other day it just hit me. I said, America has lost its heart. America has definitely lost its heart. There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. And, you know, I, it's interesting because I'm so frustrated, as you know, we've talked before. I, I'm so frustrated in, in, uh, in reading, and I want to get to this, especially that you're, you're, you're focusing on the opioid which breaks my heart because I lost a kid to opioids. It was a woman I dated about five years, and I basically was this kid's father, and we lost touch for a while. And then one day I got a message and a call that at 28 he overdosed. And uh, I had been railing about the opioid thing. I, I tell, I think my sensitivity and your sensitivity is that we are kind of cursed by our perceptions, by our ability to to see below the surface, to see where the evil comes from, where the lack of connection. And for years I just told people, you know, I, I'm concerned, this is what my concerns are. We opened an epidemic, school shootings, increasing teen suicide, okay, uh, the the mass shootings, all of these things, and yet what seems to be the, the retreat, the higher ground that people want to take, they want to talk about salaries and career. And I say, we do not have a commonality to even begin communication. So you want to go, you know, you talked about the drugs. I mean, they're advertising drugs today like we used to see toothpaste ads. It is absolutely horrifying to me to see pharmaceutical companies throwing in you know, every two or three minutes, another ad for another drug, and we just accept this. Mm-hmm. So, you want to go there with the opioids and the, and the well, pharmaceuticals? This is my most recent book. It's going to be published next year. It's called On Heroin. Um, the subtitle is America, Neoliberalism and the Search for Meaning. But, I mean, I, in terms of the pharmaceuticals, this is definitely a unique thing to America. I mean, in Europe, you're not allowed to do that. In South America, you're not allowed to do that. Um, so this is definitely an American phenomenon of this direct marketing. I mean, you know, people shouldn't be allowed, at least it seems to me, to demand from their doc drugs. They should be prescribed drugs by their doctor, and it shouldn't be kind of a, a consumer dialogue, right? I want this because this told me the commercial said it made me feel better, right? This is... Um, I think a, a deeply problematic element of our healthcare industry in that it's no longer a, a purely, I mean, healthcare should be about service, right? Hypothetically, at least you would think it would be about that to help people help their body, help people to become whole and, and, and healthy. And it's becoming just basically a, a kind of like a consumer marketplace where, 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 um, you, yeah, like you're you're watching television one night and you see an advertising for an antidepressant that can make you feel better or something that can help you stop smoking or this or that. And then you go to your doctor as a consumer versus a versus as being a, a – so this is obviously problematic in many ways, which is also probably has to do with why the cost of health care in America is so outrageously high and compared to other countries. But again, the well, you, you know, Let me just jump in. You were talking about obesity before. You tie obesity. Here are these uh, drugs being advertised for diabetes, and all of the people that they're showing have got to be 40 to 50 pounds overweight. So they're not even discussing, they're not even attacking the cause of the diabetes. They want to yeah. just give it a pill to take away yeah, the yeah, symptoms. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's actually part of the whole thing, you know, is, is not addressing the underlying to making people whole and healthy. But yes, there's a tendency to only do, address symptoms because that's the way that you can reproduce the market more efficiently. 
and generate more profit, of course. But I mean, listen, capital, the way it, it operates at its most basic elementary level is that it has to create new markets, right? It goes into an area, you know, silver mine. It goes into a silver mine, takes out all the silver, and then what does it do next? It goes to look for the next silver mine. I mean, this is what, this is how capital operates. And now that all of the silver mines and gold mines of the planet have essentially been found and taken over, the new area of expansion is into the human body, right? It's into the virtual sphere, into the, into the digital sphere, but it's absolutely into the biological sphere. And so there's every new day, there's a new therapy, a new technique, or a new pill, or a new pharmacological agent that is being introduced into the market as a method to generate profit for investors. Not, not to really to help people. I mean, if it helps people, great. But that's not necessarily the primary goal. The primary goal is to create a new market that's constituted around the biological space of the human beings. So again, this is just a lack of consciousness. It's a lack of awareness. It's a lack of collective political mobilization lack of public will, listen, this isn't right. I mean, in a way, all of this is just so, it's, you don't even have to think about it that long. It's like, it's not right. It's wrong. There's nothing to think about, you know? There's nothing to think about here. It's just, it's just wrong, you know? And it's like, there shouldn't even be really a debate about some of these things. Why would you ever debate something like this? It's just fundamentally wrong. And You're right. But there again, what I'm finding with the new think, you know, with the neoliberalism and everything else is, oh, no, everything's subjective. If you call it wrong, it's because you call it wrong. I don't call it yeah, wrong. Yeah, well, that's, and again, that's, that's one of the, what's happened is that there's been a breakdown of public space, of public consciousness, of public will, and everything is being privatized, including people's brains, including people's subjectivity, becoming, I mean, uh, you know, a perfect example of this is people wanting to brand themselves as humans. I mean, this is like, right. when you think about that from the outside, it's totally, out. I mean, it's really one of the most outrageous developments you could ever possibly imagine is a human being kind of coding their own surface with, as a brand. Like, you know, I'm not Brian, I am brand. I mean, this is... Um, you know, direct psychological warfare against human beings. And again, it's wrong, right? There's, there's no, um, let's talk about this, right? It's wrong. It has to be said that it's wrong, and people have to recognize that it's wrong. I mean, there's no, how, how do you negotiate with somebody who would well, think that would be okay, <laughs> you know? Well, this is what I'm finding is that I can't have a discourse with someone who tells me, oh, no, no, it's just the individual. That's what I decide. You know, I, I, I saw a video recently that talked about, broke down liberalism versus leftism versus um, conservatism versus uh, libertarianism. And one of the tenets he was using, he was talking about using morality, the five basic tenets, general ethical principles I mean, of I, morality. Let me just interrupt you because, I, like, to me, they're all problematic now. I, I don't think any of them really work, and I think the whole intellectual struggle today is to identify something new. I mean, I, I don't identify with any of those. I mean, of course, like anything, there are good points and bad points that are contained in, in any philosophy, but ultimately, all of those individual political philosophies you just mentioned, I mean, I think they're all wrong. I think they've all failed. It's clear that they've all failed. And so I think the struggle today, as we're kind of living through this collective trauma articulate a new kind of politics, a new kind of consciousness, a new kind of symbolic reality. And I think, you know, you asked me in the beginning what my writing was about. I mean, that's the, that's the direction that it's going, or at least that's, where I, that's what I'm interested in. Because the way that, I, the way that I'm seeing it now develop, it's almost like we're, we're coming to this kind of I think, uh, I know you're there, Brian, but you just went silent. I, I think I, you may yeah. be just, there you come back. Hello? You came back. Yeah. Yeah, you come back. Go ahead. Where, where did you lose me so I can pick back up? You, just, you said, uh, 
yeah, it was it was only a couple of seconds. You were talking about oh, okay. where where you where you road. see things going, where they have to go. Okay. Yeah. So, so here is that we're coming to this fork in the road, and one side is it's very clear what's going to happen, which is just the direction that we're on: more capitalism, more corporate power, more technological development, more human alienation and um, exploitation. Right. This is all pointing towards the eventual deployment of artificial intelligence, which will be, and, you know, you've read Harari, so you're aware of what's going to happen. I mean, at least in his viewpoint, what's going to happen. You're looking at the potential historical rupture of, huma- of humanity, literally like the end of humanity. And this is not something that's going to happen in the next thousand years. We're talking about 50 years or 100 years from if it isn't, some kind of war, some kind of ecological devastation, then undoubtedly, undoubtedly, the knockout punch will be from the full development of artificial intelligence. This is just, and this is by no means some fringe conspiracy theory. This is what Harari will say, who's, who's a leading academic on this, or someone like Ray Kurzweil will say, who is the director of the Google X Laboratories. Or someone like Stephen Hawking has said before he died, or Elon. I mean, this is kind of accepted wisdom that the direction that we are going, once artificial intelligence is really mobilized into our political and public corporate spaces, it's it's kind of game over, right? So that's one side of the fork, and the other side of the fork is you can just say X, in the sense that X marks the spot, in the sense that you don't know, right? But this is the risk that I think we have to take because the other side is is not good. There's nothing good about that side. And and you can give it all the the sophisticated marketing from Madison Avenue, give it all the sophisticated propaganda coming from places like Wired Magazine or, you know, the the kind of Silicon Valley superstars. But, But there's nothing good about it. There's just nothing good about it. The other side, what I call X, is something else. Now, what is that? I don't know what it is. I don't think anyone does. But it has. Well, I think we talked do. about. I think it's approach to moving back to the heart. Well, yeah, yes, of course. But, but I'm saying, like, how, how will that look in our actual day-to-day experience in terms of the external structures of our lives? I don't know. But yes, absolutely. What it means is some kind of spiritual, symbolic reinvigoration. Some kind of transformation of consciousness, some kind of awakening to the fact that we don't just live in Boston or America or North America or Peru or wherever. We live on Spaceship Earth. That's where we live. There has to be some kind of collective awareness to that fact. And once that happens, then you can see things. Hey, listen, Things can change quick. I mean, this idea that things can't change, I mean, things change overnight all the time. I mean, the whole world can change in a day. I mean, there's, there's, yes, of course, it does seem like things are incredibly stagnant today. The only thing that seems to be changing is our Facebook feeds, right? But this doesn't preclude the idea that change is impossible. Change is possible. And, you know, I, I just finished the most recent book by, by Zizek, and he, he used a line from the Bible that says, you know, when will the kingdom come? And Christ says, like a thief in the night, right? Like a thief in the night. And what he means by that is like it'll come when you least expect it. Change comes when you least expect it. And this is what I think people have to just be out on the lookout for. When will things start to shift? Like a thief in the night. You don't know. You have to be open, Right. So this, this to me, exactly, and to I me, think my, that my own personal yeah. project of living my life, trying to trace a line of this development, grow, and then myself grow as a person, and see what happens, right? But but what I do know is this first side of the fork is a place that I don't want to go to, and it's a place I don't think anyone should want to go to, unless you happen to be a, a a tech billionaire or a sociopath, then maybe you want to go that way. But if, but if you're not like that, then I would recommend not wanting to go like that, you know, and be open to this this X factor, this this who knows. 
But, but that's it, though, man. And, and um, yeah, I appreciate you having me on today, and it was a great conversation. And and um, I know. And so much more that we can cover. So the next time you want to come back, it'd be fabulous. I, uh, you know, I, this just every time we do this, it's like opening the box, and all these beautiful ideas and concepts come out. And uh, you know, I I really commend you on being a thinker, on being a visionary, on being you know, a, a deep thinker and seeing all of the, the below the surface when everybody else is on the surface and you're looking for the causes. And, yeah, we don't have the answers, but we do know inherently to people like you and me, this is wrong, folks. This is not the way uh, we manifest ourselves with all our human abilities and uh, our, our virtues. Uh, it's becoming less and less that. And unless it's people like us doing these kind of things and saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, I mean, I've done a simple, quick thing. I know you got to go, but in talking recently to some millennials, I noticed that uh, certain millennials have great communication skills. And again, I guess I'm too traditional in that I, I, I trace many of these things back to the family and community. And I will ask them a question. Uh, gee, let me guess, you grew up in a family where you had dinner together as a family most days. And every single time they say, how did you know? And I said, because you can communicate, you can speak, you pick up on my body language, you look me in the eye, you you can carry on a discourse more than two minutes, and you're searching for answers like I am. And so you're right. We don't know what the answer is, but I, I'm proposing this. Rather than concentrate on all the, the things that are wrong, why don't we suggest as a nation that if you have a kid, you try to sit down with that kid every single day for at least a half an hour, eat a meal, and have a conversation. And no, let's I mean, see I, where I that goes. You know, I'll comment on that quickly before I go, but I think you're absolutely right. And this idea that, you know, the family structure or doing something, you know, like having dinner at night with your children is quote unquote traditional. And I mean, this is an outrageous, outrageous idea um, that that is like some kind of, you know, throwback, like some kind of oppressive, whatever that the, the, you know, that, that this, these kind of neoliberal postmodern theorists would articulate, but no, it's very interesting, right? It's very interesting here because this idea of the family being kind of a problematic, oppressive structure, it actually comes – one of the, the, the primary um, you could say, sources for this way of thinking, it's actually a profound misinterpretation of Marx because Marx had said that the family is just kind of this – you know, he, he was critical of the family. But what he was critical of was the bourgeois family. And what, what, what he was critical of was, like, the nuclear family. And in a way, I'm critical of that, too. I mean, I don't think by any means that the, the nuclear American family is a great model for the family structure. To me, the truly healthy model of a family is an intergenerational extended family. I mean, this is the true family. Exactly. And this is the kind of family exactly. that we should want to be living in. What, what's happened with so many postmodern, whatever you want to call these people, these kind of postmodern left-wing thinkers, is that they've taken this kind of insight of Marx that the family is a and they and they've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater, where the family is bad, and that, and this is not this of course is an outrageous statement. The family is the the structure of it's the bedrock of human life. It's the absolute essential ingredient to any child to any person living a, a meaningful life. They have this kind of family structure, neighborhood, whatever, community structure, you know, these, these kind of interrelated structures that, that you're part of. However, I would agree with the idea that this kind of contained, erotic, nuclear family isn't the best model for a child to grow up in. I don't think it's good at all. I, I think that there, there are problems with this, this kind of idea of, the, of what Marx would call the bourgeois family. But to your point, I mean, I think it's a matter of common sense that if you grew up in a family and you're being spoken to and having and being engaged in dialogue 
on the verbal and emotional level every day by your parents, then of course you're going to be an effective communicator. I mean, this seems like, you know, I mean, the thing that's so funny about today is we've kind of forgotten that the sun rises in the east, you know. We've forgotten basic common sense. And so, of course, if you grew up in a family structure like that, then obviously you're going to have some good communication skills. And if you grew up in a family structure that's fragmented and you're not, you need to not being addressed material needs or emotional needs or communicative needs, and you're communicating through te- corporate technological platforms every day with your friends, then obviously you're probably not going to look at people in the eye when you talk to them. You're not going to be engaged when you meet new people. I mean, again, these are just basic like, you know, two plus two equals four type of things. And and, and and we're acting like they're these, like, complex sociological formulas, and they're really not. And um, so, yeah, that's what I would say about that. <laughs> great. Well, Brian, thank you. I had a great thank time. Thank you, Tom, for having me. I'm sure yeah. anybody who listens to this will maybe just uh, get a glimpse of awakening. And we've done a little bit better. So the more people we can move toward uh, uh, and an awakening and enlightenment. I think uh, you're right. We we shall overcome. I mean, I laugh at. Uh, it, it seems that any time, you know, you or I speak up, and I I don't know how you get greeted, but I know I get what what like people. First thing is why do you care, and what you're not going to change things. So what, why don't you just shut up? Why don't you just accept this is the way it is? Well, as you've said throughout this program, it's not right. There are things that are not right, that are wrong. And unless some people start talking, I've just stumbled on a book called First, and this guy, um, Scott Harrison, just did an amazing thing when he was a nightclub promoter and totally self-indulgent, totally selfish, gets this awakened. He goes numb, has no feeling in his hands, legs, goes to a a few um, neurologists, they can't figure out because there's nothing physically wrong with them. And he opens, he goes for a search on Google, and he finds that the first thing he's, when he types in numbness, the first thing that comes up is spiritual numbness. And, and he goes in this thing and, and now heads this huge charity organization putting water in all over the world, clean water. Wow, and, that's beautiful. Uh, yeah, and, and, and the transformation, this redemption, this he, he and, and, and to me, this is the shift that needs to be taken. We have to get away yeah. from what me, 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 and this narcissism to the other. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm with you, man. All right, Brian, thank you. Let's do it again. All right, Tom. Thanks for having me, my friend. Okay, and thank you, folks, for joining us. And you can find Brian... On Amazon, it's Brian Francis Culkin. All of his books are available. He's a great thinker. I I said one day that we're going to see him uh, throughout television land and the media because uh, he is an original thinker and certainly needed for the times. Thank you, folks. I'm Tom Hayes, and that's Upbeat for today.